0: Hello and welcome to the Random Works Podcast. Today I have Dr. Vijay Ramani, who is currently a Sandlow Fellow and a Principal Investigator at the University of California at San Francisco. Vijay completed his BSC in Chemical Engineering at Princeton University with minors in Quantitative and Computational Biology and Engineering Biology. After finishing his undergrad, he spent a year as a Research Intern and Computational Biologist at Sangamo Biosciences before joining the Graduate Program at the University of Washington where he worked with... Professor Jay Shindore on genomics before starting his current position. Welcome Vijay.
1: Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm very excited to be here.
0: So Vijay, you seem to have had a very phenomenal path through science and all right at the top as well as doing some really fascinating work and all. So how did it all start for you? Were you someone always interested to foray into the sciences were there any familial influences or any other influences around you how did this all start for you
1: yeah it's a it's a great question i hadn't you know i hadn't thought about it until you know given these questions actually and kind of went back and thought about how did you know i get very interested in science and biology and and you know for me um i think a lot of it starts with my family so um my parents uh my dad you know, uh, both my parents studied in India. Um, my dad did his B.Tech at IIT Bombay um, and then came to the States to do his master's in, in computer engineering. Uh, my mom did her bachelor's in chemistry, but um, after they got married, she came to the States in the late 80s, um, right before I was born. And uh, she completely switched. She, she does not really do chemistry anymore, but she's now a, you know, a chartered accountant. and um, mostly spent time raising myself and my sister. Um, and so there's a there's a lot of influence on STEM growing up, right? A, a pretty big focus that you know you should try to excel at math, try to excel at science, try to, you know, really focus on those subjects, right? Um, so there was a, you know, a lot of interest from my parents and in, uh, in, in, in making sure we were educated in that way. Um, you know, it's interesting, right, the the diaspora has led to, you know, a lot of the the family friends you have growing up here, you know, here in the States, for instance, right, a lot of them are in STEM, right, and so um, I think one of the earliest influences that I hadn't really appreciated until just a few years ago was that um, many of our very close family friends were actually biologists, right, they were, they were, they were PhDs in biology, and they were all working in biotech, they had all finished postdocs, you know, in Boston area and whatnot, and then they had gone to some of the big Big biotech, say New Jersey, right, and in Boston, and and I, I have to wonder if that was a, a big influence, right? Because they were really at the forefront in the '90s, right? Even before maybe this big boom that we now really appreciate for in terms of biosciences and technology and the union of that. Um, and so, uh, when I was in in high school. Um, one of the, there was a new class, I went to a public school in New Jersey, but there there was a new class that they were trying out that just involved research. And the idea was that, okay, we're gonna try to do a curriculum free class where the student picks a project, right? Do some reading, right? Go on Google Scholar and try to go to the library, try to find a bunch of papers, find something that interests you, right? And then reach out, cold email, PIs at local universities, right? So I, I, I was very fortunate. I cold emailed someone at Rutgers University, which is, you know, maybe 45 minutes away from where I grew up. And um, he was nice enough to respond and and allow me to come in as a high school student, right? And do a material science research. And so this was, you know, 2006 to 2008. And um, I had a chance to work with a graduate student in a postdoc, right? Mostly just learn from them, right? Um, about uh, carbon nanotube research, and and the idea was to, you know, at the time was, oh, could you engineer nano nanotechnology-inspired structures to be biocompatible, right? That was the very vague idea, right? Mostly material science, um, and that was a really foundational experience for me, right? And so, so you know, it started with a pretty Big STEM focus growing up, and and um, then got a chance to do some research, and and went into undergrad thinking I would want to do material science and chemical engineering, and then you know kind of fell in love with biology. I took a another course, right, that um, Princeton at the time was offering. It was called integrated science. It was this kind of new way of of trying to teach biology that would integrate computer science, chemistry, physics, all into one course, right um and that really got me excited about quantitative biology and um after i graduated i uh we can talk about it later in the in the in the podcast but i decided to you know go and and work for a year um had a chance to work in uh, a a company that was doing genome editing before the CRISPR days right so this was og genome editing which is quite exciting and that year is when the, the, the big CRISPR papers were published, right? I think this is 2012, 2013, right? And um, and so I got a chance to do really genomics work there full-time and I did that for a year and then I went to graduate school. And so that's kind that's and then, and then you know, I, and then, you know, I did my PhD and, and now I'm here. So, but thinking about the, the influences, I think that that's kind of it, right? There was a lot of, I was very privileged to have, you know, support growing up and then even, in the public school that I went to, right, the support for you know doing STEM in a new way, right? In a creative way, which was very
0: exciting. That's a really fantastic overview of the absolutely stellar journey you had at a time, right at, right at a time when quantitative biology was really coming onto its own. It had already existed for some time, but that was the time it really burst onto the scene. And as you very recently pointed out CRISPR was what made the waves. And it was also the subject of last year's Chemistry Nobel Prize, the two fantastic pioneers of the field and all. And you had a really, really great time in that, uh, it seems um, in the, And being right at the the right place at the right time, at a time when things were happening and you were there, this was quite a coincidence and all. And looking at your experience, it seems you have had a really surreal ride and journey over the years and all. So uh, you talked about uh, heading off to the industry right after your completing your undergrad at Princeton, you headed off to the industry for your year at Sangamo, and before you decided to plunge into a graduate program. So was it always a conscious decision to take a break before graduate school, or how did it all come about? How did that industrial experience come about?
1: That's a that's a great question, right? And I think it's it's nice, it's in theme with this title of this podcast, right? Kind of random walk, so we don't exactly know what direction we're going to go in, right? And... and um, you know, for me I mentioned that I, I thought I'd come into undergrad and want to do material science right and so I immediately started taking chemical engineering courses right and you know I think that I, I think that undergrad here in the states is a little bit strange right um, you kind of dive into something you think you're going to do right and, and sometimes it's not the easiest to, to pivot right and uh, I Enjoyed my time at Princeton, but it was also pretty tough, right? I think um, it was—it's it's kind of like a pressure cooker environment. I wasn't entirely sure exactly what I wanted to do, right? Um, and 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 honestly, the when I I thought I would want to go to graduate school right after undergrad, right? And and I applied to a few schools and I didn't get it, right? And so then now I'm beginning to panic. Right? Okay, what what exactly am I gonna do, right? And 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 I think in many ways this was like. Critical because if I had gotten into graduate school right after undergrad, I, I don't think I would be, you know, sitting here, right? Um, I I was pretty burned out. I, you know, it was it was not the right headspace to try to tackle something as big as graduate school, right? And um, so then I kind of cold emailed a bunch of people, right? I was saying, okay, maybe I should work for a year, right? And I had done a little bit of work on um, zinc finger and tal engineering as a senior thesis project really kind of minor stuff right but I'd done a fair bit of reading about it right and I'd known Sangamo was kind of the big player in this in this space. What was nice about Sangamo at the time they've, they've grown quite big um, in the last, you know, 10 years or so but at the time it was a I, I want to say it was less than 100 people Like the company was quite small right and um, I kind of cold emailed someone, and they they got back to me, and they said, "Sure, why don't you come and come and work as a research intern, right, for one or two years?" And uh, so I just kind of packed my bags, and from we grew like grew up in New Jersey, went to college in New Jersey, packed my bags, and went to Berkeley, right? And um, and it was awesome. It it was the the best decision I could have made because um, I was able to do molecular biology and genomics and computational biology basically full time, right? Working on a field that I understood reasonably well from just the senior thesis reading I'd done, and I was able to work at the at the kind of the uh, 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 at the forefront of the technology, right? And that work for a year, I think, was what I needed to convince myself that I could do this graduate school thing, right? That I could kind of work for who knows how long, right? It was like five to seven years, right? If you're lucky, working on you know a project that no one else is really working on right and trying to make your own way through it right and and um and so that was my that was really the 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 reason why I went to sangamo but it was ended up being absolutely transformative right it was it was really a spectacular opportunity
0: absolutely and you talked about facing rejections and rejections is something that one faces a lot in academia there's always anonymous review too out there rejecting everyone and then there are multiple ways you can be rejected right from grad school applications to thesis um, to your thesis proposals grants and other fellowships and all so how do you deal with rejections both in the academic sphere as well as the personal sphere over the years have you developed any sort of mechanisms to handle rejections that come time timerrs in an academia
1: you know I used to take it quite personally right <laughs> it's very difficult it's very difficult not to right and um, it, so, so so um I had I had the the good fortune to get rejected a lot when I was growing up but my my one of the things that my um, parents were very you know very keen on was making sure that I also did things besides STEM. Right? And so the big thing for us was music. And so um, we started with you know, South Indian classical music, but then I very quickly became a pretty serious Western instrumentalist. I played the flute. I mostly sang. And involved with that are a lot of, a lot of auditions, right? <laughs> you're going, you're going do these blind auditions, right? You're performing a fair bit, right? And for most of the auditions, you're losing, right? <laughs> People are much better than you, and and so so I think I got used to the sting of defeat pretty <laughs> early. Um, uh, still took it quite personally, right? Um, and um, you know, and then you get to you get to the point of applying for things, right? And you realize that you're going to get rejected nine times out of ten, and that's that's if you're good, right? Um, I think you know uh, uh, one of my one of my close friends and the PI who you know his lab is right next to mine, um, Hani. He he. When I first started as a PI in, back in 2018, um, one of the things he told me right, was that it it doesn't really matter. It, you know, there's, there's grantsmanship, right? You have to you, you want to make sure you're 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 writing your ideas down in a clear way. You're writing you're, you're presenting your hypotheses and you're presenting your data in a way that people can understand, right? But the best grant and a grant that's maybe 20% worse right still probably going to get funded about 10% of the time if you're if if you if you're able to meet that bar right that's that's 90% of the time you're going to get rejected right it doesn't really matter right how great you think the idea is how brilliant the idea is right and that's just the nature of of kind of the, the random nature of how we do review right and um, so you have to get used to it and you have to be willing to just put your ideas into the grinder over and over and over again right and just be okay with the fact that ten percent of the time, you know, you're you're hoping ten percent of the time you're going to get success, right? And so you just kind of you get you get you build a callus, right? You kind of eventually you stop taking it personally because you can't take it personally anymore.
0: That's an absolutely valid piece of advice, and absolutely dealing with rejections is something um, really important to come to terms with too actually have the wonderful journey that you have had in academia and elsewhere too as you talked about and all so coming to your work in Sangamo so what exactly did you work over there you talked about working with zinc fingers and talents and it was right at the time when CRISPR was coming onto the scene and all so when the CRISPR the paper was out and all and it already in a very short amount of time it had a lot of impact did you also sort of gauge the way it was going the, the revolutionary potential of it or the way CRISPR took off even sort of surprised you beyond the amazement that you had of that revolution that was going to come about? Yeah, right. I think, I think at the
1: time, right, to be totally honest, I think what, what people were most worried about were off targets. I think they still are, right? And so one notion amongst colleagues there, if, if I remember correctly, right, was the idea that, well, Cas9 probably has a lot of off targets, right? What Sangamo had been doing for a long time was trying to prune away those off-targets, right? To try to come up with the most specific, highest activity editors, right? Um, and you can still go, go to literature even from the last three or four years, and people are still kind of making this claim, right? Okay, we should still use talons, and we should still use ZFNs for some applications, right? Even for basic science, because you know maybe the off-targets, right? The, the fact that you have fewer off-targets might might end up becoming a big deal for whatever discovery biology you're going after, right? Um, but I think there was also a lot of concern, right? Because at, at, at the time Sangamo was had had licensed to Sigma, right? This composer technology that they could use to people could pay a lot of money to order a bespoke set of zinc fingers that would target their favorite region, right? But it was it was it was expensive and, and pretty difficult to engineer, right? Um, it was Tals made it a little bit easier, but Tal's really only had maybe a year, year and a half under the sun, really before the advent of CRISPR. Um, but people were worried because it's like, okay, now I'm just going to order an oligo. <laughs> I'm going to edit whatever I want, right? Um, and and you can see, right? I mean, who's who's using zinc fingers and who's using homing, homing endonucleases and who's using towels now, right? It's really, you know, Cas9 and Cas variants have really taken over. But for me, what I did at Sangamo that was really kind of exciting was I, I was on the I was in the the research. Group right, so I wasn't on the on the clinical or development side right, and all we did, all I did, which I, which was still amazing, was I just did hundreds of selex reactions. I was using so so to for the view, for the listeners who maybe don't know what selex is right. There's many different ways that you could try to figure out how or what targets a sequence specific DNA binding protein might prefer, right? and um, you know th- this is an old method I, I think owed to. Uh, uh, Ellington, Weintraub, and um, a group at Boulder, but um, the 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 method is 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 short for selective selective amplification of ligands, right? It's 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 selection of uh, the, the the acronym is, is escaping me, but the idea is that you take a library of of oligonucleotides, you incubate your protein of interest with those oligonucleotides. It could be DNA or RNA ligands, right? And then you just use PCR or RT-PCR to enrich, you pull down your protein, you enrich whatever it bound to, and you do this multiple times, you use this mul- for multiple rounds. And then you clone, or now you use hybrid sequencing to figure out what those targets are. And you use that to define you know, the, the the nucleotide preferences of that of that protein. And um, I did that for hundreds of, of synthetic zinc fingers and for talons, right? And that got me exposed to the power of high throughput sequencing, right? And the, the ability to, you know, the, the power of making hundreds of thousands to millions of parallelized measurements using sequencing technology. And I, I think I was excited about the idea of genome editing, but you could tell from, from my work too that I've kind of stayed adjacent to the CRISPR revolution. right? I, I, a lot of my work is focused on measurement. And I think that is owed to what I actually did at Sangamo, which wasn't just. You know the biochemistry of zinc fingers, but actually just applying kind of these 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 well-defined assays and then analyzing the data, um, and so so that's that was the big thing I, that I did there that was really exciting for me. But but a, but a little bit adjacent, right? Not, not, maybe not quite what you'd expect.
0: That's really fascinating, and it points out to the. Ubiquity of basic sciences all around and all. And coming to industrial experience, before we move on to stereotype and grad school and all. So, you have been in the industry, you had a chance to be at Sangamo and all. And so what do you think the way um, industry and academia works? Is there anything over the years, what we have seen the belllabs of the days of you don't exist anymore and all. And what happens is this whole question of how interested industry is in sort of driving basic fundamental research, which actually catalyzes all the big advances, whether it be CRISPR or anything of that sort, the whole quantum computing revolution, these are all built on, fundamental research that was funded over the years by governmental agencies and universities all around and before the ideas became big and all and there are countless examples around and all so in this context how do you see what role industry playing in the coming days and all and how do you see the industry academic collaboration shaping up over the years yeah
1: it's 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 something we, we i think we all talk about in the academy a lot right like how how do we make sure that basic science, the basic science that gives rise to CRISPR and whatnot, how do you make sure it gets funded, right? And and how do we make sure that on the other side of that, how do you make sure that industry keeps the innovation alive, right? How how do you make sure that there's still a a focus on basic science and basic discovery biology and industry, right? And and unfortunately we've moved away from that at least on the industry side, right? You can argue moved away from it on the academia side too when it comes to funding, right? But, I would love for there to be a Bell Labs for biology, right? I think I think that that was the idea behind Calico, but I think priorities change and, and understandably they have to go in different directions, right? Um, there's still a, a, a pretty awesome amount of basic computational biology research happening at places like Calico and DeepMind, right? But at the wet lab side, it, just, it, it hasn't quite emerged, right? Um, I do think we're gonna see that though. I think that I think that you know there, there's going to be right a, a interest in trying to come up with models maybe someone has to come up with something totally new right that bridge the gap formally between industry and and academia right and and I think there's probably going to have to be a pretty big financial commitment for that to happen but I also think that we're we're kind of in this in this zone especially now 20 we'll say 2018 to hopefully 2023 2024 right where people even the lay public recognize just how powerful synthetic biology and, bi- and, and basic biology can be for changing, you know, changing human health, right? mRNA vaccines are such a beautiful example of this, right? Um, and, I, and I really do think that, that, that the excitement, right, is going to translate into new funding models and new funding opportunities. I couldn't tell you, and I don't know how exactly that will shape up, right? Um, but that is my intuition, right, that, that we're going to move towards new entities and new um, uh, 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 places to do science, right, that allow for, you know, a bridge between, between those two usually disparate ideas, right. I also think that, you know, especially with the, I'll, I'll keep using mRNA vaccines as an example, right, I think that big pharma, right, recognizes they probably made a bit of a blunder in in, Scuppering a lot of their kind of basic scientific initiatives and are going to go back. They're going to backtrack, right? And, and start, you know, focusing on the basic science of infectious disease biology and whatnot in a way that they didn't think was lucrative before, right? But now I think there's an understanding that probably things need to change. So I think it'll be two things, right? New institutes and new uh, 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 places to, to kind of bridge the gap, and then basically industry kind of walking it back. On the academia side, right, this is a a topic for another podcast, I think, right? But like funding needs, you know, the funding institution needs to change, right? And there's lots of ways it could change, but it probably needs to change. But yeah, that's another discussion entirely. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Those are some truly great and recent points. And as you talked about mRNA vaccines, they're a really stellar example of how basic science and applied science both can come together, academy and industry, and you left on a really optimistic note about industries sort of backtracking and recognizing their follies and disbanding their basic science groups by the dozen and all. And this is something really important to note, as it might be quoted to conspiracy theorists, but. mRNA vaccines weren't just built in a year's time. Basic mRNA research has been funded by the National Institute of Health for the last three to four decades. And four decades back, at least no one was writing grants about a pandemic in 2020 that will require mRNA vaccines of all things to sort of combat it. And that was a really, really great point you made.
1: No, exactly, right? I think it's, it's, it's thanks to basic discoveries in immunology, in molecular biology, right, and in bioengineering, right, that 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 we 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 were able to address this pandemic as as, as we were, right, um, and so or in the process of addressing, I should say, right. Um, but yeah, I, I I think I think you, you you don't have to look very far to find proponents of basic science, at least in my institute.
0: Absolutely. So after having a really wonderful stint up Sangamo you headed to uh, University of Washington for grad school, where you joined Jesh and Professor Josh Andruslav. And also, was it something that you always sort of planned on at the beginning, or was it a scale of another set of rejections? And finally, the department at UW was one of the few departments that accepted you and the department matched your interests the best, and that's how you headed over there.
1: Exactly, right? I think it was, you know, I there were a couple of choices I had for graduate school, but. When I went to interview at University of Washington, um, please, I hadn't applied to the first round, first time around, right, the year before, right. Um, I I met with many people, including Jay, right, during my during my interviews, who I I, I just had this feeling that it 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 was the place to go to, right. Um, and the, there's a lot of things, right. I I really got along with the the senior graduate students and the junior graduate students who were interviewing me. Um, there was a commitment to graduate student education too that I, I found really exciting. The class sizes were small, um, and for me, it was kind of a no brainer to go there, right? And 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 I should say that you know when I when I went to, when I decided to go to graduate school, I didn't think I would want to be in academia, right? I think that's important to note, right? I I I I'd, I'd spent this year in industry, right? And and what I had seen in industry was that to really advance an industry, you probably need a PhD. Right? I, I, I hope that's changing now. I, I, I don't know offhand if that really is changing, but I would hope it's probably relaxing a little bit. But at the time, at least, right, I, I had the sense that you really need to get a PhD. And um, I thought that, you know, I, I wanna come and I wanna work on things that excite me, but I, I don't know if this academia thing is, is, is for me, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, when I started my rotations, I, I kind of had this feeling that okay, well, we'll just see how it goes, right? We'll, we'll, I, I like the environment. The professors seem all fantastic, and 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 they do exciting work. Let's just see how it goes, right? and and kind of went went through rotations, um, and 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 it worked out. <laughs> it worked out really well. <laughs>
0: That's really fascinating. And before we talk about your time over there, it's important to note one of the few crafts that people outside of genomics or even outside of biology must have seen in their lives, people, especially in academia, is the Co- is the cost of genomic sequencing over time. And the massive drop that came about that led to cause dropping by over 10,000 times and all. Jai the Professor jay Shindore was a very pivotal figure in that when he was at George Church's lab.
1: I was tremendously fortunate to start graduate school right when, so I want to say maybe 2011, 2012 is when the MySeq was released, right? And that was the first sequencer that you could reliably do onboard cluster generation with. And so that this is a bench top sequencer that would give you data within 24 hours, right? Give you, you know, sequence, we'll say, you know, tens of millions of molecules, right? At very high quality. And you could walk up to the instrument and just start it. right? you hit go and you suddenly have you know, tens of gigabytes, at least of data, right? And so, <laughs> so you could imagine that once you have access to something like this, right, where you can just hit the button and make millions of parallelized measurements for any nucleic acid species of interest, right, that opens the, the you know, the floodgates for technological innovation, right? And, and, and Jay has really been at the forefront of that, right? I mean, he's truly exceptional at that, right, and, and exceptional at, bringing people on, convincing them that an idea that he's been thinking about for a very long time is their idea and then pushing them to get it to work, right? Um, and and it, I, I mean, to say that it's revolution, it, it, to say that it defined my career is, is an understatement, right? But, but I think it's, it's really defined biology in the last 15, 16 years, right? This kind of using the sequencer as a, as a broadly enabling microscope? It was, it was a big deal. It was a big deal for the entire department, right? I think it changed the way everyone, you know, across the fields of biochemistry, genetics, cell biology, how they think about their problems, right? So it's a good time to start grad school.
0: Absolutely. And you talked about uh, g- gelling well with Jay and JS Love, the senior graduate students out there. So did you always, uh, already have a project in mind when you were starting out? Or was it a tale of some other random works that you had to take before you finally narrowed down on a project that will enthuse you for the next three, four years in grad school?
1: Yeah, so, so it, there's a confluence of things, right? I think that we could talk about the, the the first things I worked on in graduate school, right? I was, I'll keep saying this. I was, I got very lucky, right? Think things, a lot of things didn't work, but but some crazy ideas I had worked, right? And and that was a really great jumping off point. But when I joined Jay's lab, it was um, it had maybe been a few years since uh, a series of of seminal papers came out about a technology for s- resolving how nucleic acids are structured, right? And, 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 and specifically, this was a technology that was invented by Yoge Decker when he was a postdoc in Nancy Kleckner's lab called, called chromosome conformation capture. And they called it 3C, right? And the idea was that, okay, we, we, we know from, from microscopy vaguely how DNA looks when it's packaged into the eukaryotic nucleus right this this we can go into this a little bit later when you talk about what we work on but 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 vaguely speaking right we we know that DNA is packaged right into meters of DNA get packaged into a very small small uh, volume and and that packaging has really interesting topological properties but also just gene regulatory properties in terms of potentiating whether a gene is on or off right and Yob, and, and, and now Yoob's group, right, had, had done a lot of technology development, figuring out that one way that you could measure the structure of that packing of how that DNA is packaged in the nucleus, would be through breaking up the chromosomal fiber and then sticking it back together. And then using DNA technology like PCR, or now high throughput sequencing, to measure how often do two regions stick back together by ligation. Right? So this was called 3C, and then they advanced that to 4C, 5C, and now they call it HI-C for high-throughput sequencing of, of chromosome confirmation capture products. And this was really exciting to me. This, it, it, I think for me, um, those are some of my favorite papers to read, even you know reading about genomics, right? Because the idea was so clever, right? Well, we're, gonna, we're going to make pairwise measurements, right? by basically using ligation biochemistry right, and, and, and PCR sequencing. And so when I, when I rotated with Jay, I said, why hasn't anyone done this for RNA? Right? It turns out some people had, had laid the groundwork for doing this with RNA. right. Um, but why has no one done this globally for, for RNA structures? Because we know that much like how DNA is packaged within the nucleus into very specific arrangements, right. Um, we know that RNA. Uh, adopts secondary structures and and and, and tertiary higher order conformations that are pretty important for rna regulation right and so i said like, could we could we basically apply proximity ligation to study rna structures and that was my rotation project and and i kind of pitched Jay on this idea no one had done it at the time and Jay was like sure just go for it right why don't we give you an easy project first so so work on you know this one other thing but also you can work on that and it probably won't work but why don't you just work on it right and it, it kind of worked, <laughs> and so, and so you know, the the we, we got some preliminary data that showed it was kind of working. I ended up spending spending you know the next year refining the method and trying to get it to work in yeast and in, in human cells, um, and that ended up getting published as a Nature Biotech paper in I think 2015, um, and and that was kind of the I it it worked way better than I thought it would, right? And and we were able to you know develop and publish this method. And that kind of got me along the track that I, I honestly still am uh, pursuing, which is you know methods development to study st- the structure of nucleic acids and, and study, u- use methods development to understand how structure potentiates gene regulation. And that's basically the, the broad theme of what we, we work on. But that was, the, that was the first couple of years of, of graduate school for me, right? And so, so that worked out um,
0: and, then, and then I just kind of kept going. That's really fascinating, and you talked about methods development, and we'll come to that shortly uh, uh, and delve into it, but before that, during grad school, did you, have, uh, did you suffer from the ubiquitous imposter syndrome that many people go through, and do you still do now, because many have come on random books, and they say the imposter syndrome never really leaves you, be it in academia or elsewhere, and how do you cope with it, how do you confront your evictious imposter syndrome?
1: Yeah, so, so in graduate school, I would say the big problem, right? Imposter syndrome was it, think, I, think, I think, you know, graduate school in general is, is quite stressful, right? I think that it's a, it's a ridiculous percentage of students suffer from some kind of mental health, you know, suffer from, from, from mental health issues in, in graduate school, right? And I, I count myself among them, right? And, and imposter syndrome is part of it stress is just part of it, right? You're, you're failing 99 out of 100, 999 out of a thousand, right? Times every, right? And and the, the the small percentage of times things work, right? You tend to just jot down that data point and then very quickly move on to the next thing, right? So this is this this vicious cycle of like continuously working, right? Continuously feeling like the amount you're working is not enough, right? Um, for me, a, a big part was like therapy, right? And just like having, I, I, I think that I think that every university does it a little bit differently and none of them do it all that great but they're getting better in terms of providing really like ready access for students to get access to mental health um, support. Um, and that changed I think a lot of how I approached graduate school because before that it was just you know, the, the, the like colloquialism we use around here is like crunching right you're just like constantly working right and constantly thinking about your problems right. And, and, and part of that I think is to get around this feeling of imposter syndrome. Right. So you just like bury yourself in more work. Um, but I think that, that the, the healthiest way to do it is just like talk through it. Right. And, and I think as soon as you start talking through it and start, and I think like, your, your podcast is a great job of, of illuminating this, right. Once you realize we're all feeling it right, then you can start thinking about, okay, how do we change the institution so that people feel better? right because it, because it, it, it doesn't make sense to keep doing things the way we're doing it right we sh- we need to change it somehow so so yeah that, that i mean i would say that's that's kind of how i how it was a, it was two faceted right the first was a like a, a, a mal- maladaptive way of trying to deal with it and the second was a way that i think is a bit more sustainable
0: absolutely those are some really insightful advice and as you talked about it requires a systematic shift of sorts and all in the way we think about it and in the way the current system works and all, and those were some really great points you made. And coming back to your work, so you talked about the efficacy of methods development and all in your work that has really defined you, and over the years, something that has defined biology over the last few decades, one would like to believe is leveraging the tools that are out there, and the initial molecular biorevolution came post-World War II, the physicists tried transitioning into biology, and that's how the whole Delbru school came up in structural biology, and they used powerful techniques in microscopy, NMR, synthetic chemistry, crystallography to elucidate structures. And then we have in the last few decades, uh, in the last couple of decades, tools like uh, sequencing, or, uh, or optogenetics, or zinc fingers, and all these things, uh, Coming over and all, so how have these things sort of influenced your research, and what sort of tool development do you focus on?
1: Yeah, right. You know, the the I, I, in a lot of my talks now, I I, I tend to open up by talking about I, I an observational bias that I'm I find fascinating, right, which is the streetlight effect, right, the idea that you know if you if you're walking home at night, right, and you drop your keys, right. It's very difficult to find keys in areas that aren't illuminated by the streetlight, right? And so, as biologists, sorry, we're, we're kind of at the mercy of this, right? Where the methods you can think of the methods as the streetlights, right? And the new biology we discover is everything that's under that field that that's within the, our field of view under that streetlight, right? There's a there's a there's a a pretty great anecdote um, in the eighth day of creation, right? And 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 you know you mentioned like the inception of molecular biology, and I, I love this anecdote, right? Because it it, it 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 describes how you know the, the, you had Pauling, right, who was trying to figure out protein structure, right? And and, and then you had the, the the crystallographers, right, and you had the the, the x-ray structural biologists, right, in, in in the UK. And they were both going after, I want to say it was horsehair keratin, right? And so the discovery of the alpha helix, right, was made by Pauling. Because he was able to take the X-ray data, right, that the UK groups had made and combine it with bottom-up reconstruction, right? He'd famously machine-shopped atoms, right, put them together, right, figured out bond lengths and, and, he, and he figured out the, the topology, right, of the alpha helix. But he knew that it fit the constraints provided by the, the X-ray diffraction patterns, right? Well, Bragg noticed, right that if, they had, if, if Bragg's data collection had been with a slightly wider field of view, there is a, a, a diffraction spot that was just outside of their field of view that is a dead giveaway for helical pitch. And, and to me, that illustrates two really exciting things right. One is just how powerful the convergence of multiple methods could be, right? but also just how limited we are by our field of view. Right? We're talking about a fundamental biological discovery right, that was missed because of a slight shift in the field of view for this, for, for, for this, this kind of diffraction micrograph. Right? And, and so for what I like to think, right, I, I don't know if we're doing a great job of this or not, but what I, our goal right, is to try to think of new streetlights. Right? How can we consider all the areas where we're field of view limited, in our study of biology, and we tend to think about nuclear biology and the biology of chromatin and, and transcriptional regulation. Um, how do we first list all of these out? And then let's try to develop new methods that capture and fill in those, those blind spots, right? Um, and, the, and so that, that for me is that the big motivating factor, right? Um, trying to figure out these biological blind spots and then addressing them, right? And sometimes those blind spots have to do with scale, right? So we need to be able to, sequence more things cheaper, right? I, I think a great example of that is with single cell, although now we're getting to the point where we're basically able to, in a democratized and increasingly affordable way, sequence lots of cells, right? But also you can think about, you know, the actual molecular assay itself. Right. And so one of the things we think about is like where, where does where do Illumina and Sanger sequencing fall short, right? And, and that's that has ended up becoming a, an area that we think about
0: that's really fascinating and that was a really detailed overview of what you're working on and so something particularly in the last points that you made something that I can think of is you can sort of uh, devise ways to tag individual nucleic acids and proteins with some sort of receptors of sorts and then basically you can quantify whatever phenomena happens on that level of single cells and molecules and something of that sort.
1: Exactly, right. So that, that was a big part of the tail end of my graduate work and, and still some of the stuff we're working on now, right, which is thinking about how can you measure the nucleic acid content or, in, in, you know, we'd like to move to protein and whatnot to, in a way that's, that's resolvable at the resolution of single cells and resolvable on the Illumina sequencer, right? And so, you know, I, I, in graduate in graduate school, I worked with a bunch of people. We worked closely with Illumina as well um, to come up with what we called it single cell chromosomal indexing, and that was like one of the ways in which we were able to do this to measure uh, single cell RNA expression, single cell chromatin structure, the level of whether uh, chromatin is accessible or not, single cell higher order chromatin structure. You know, that what I mentioned before, that three C assay. Are, are two loci communicating with each other in single cells, right? Um, but um, that, that area has kind of exploded, right? You have companies like 10x, right who are constantly improving and iterating on the technology. and it's, it's, it's an exciting time to be trying to study genomics, so genome-wide phenomena, but at the level of single cells, for sure.
0: Absolutely, it's incredibly fascinating to be in, right in the thick of things and all. And you had a really interesting sort of uh, jump right from graduate school to a direct PI position and all without the conventional postdoc route that has become the vicious Norman Academy of these days. So how easy or difficult has it been? And how has been your experience overall transitioning directly to sort of running a lab as a PI and all? And you talked about your um, current work being an extension, sort of an extension of the work that you did in grad school. Is there anything else you have been doing? And what exactly have you been doing right now? Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: I'll try, try to answer the first first question. And then maybe you could just remind me what the second is, if because I might forget while I go. So 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 thinking about the jump, right. So so for for the listeners who maybe aren't familiar, right, like as you said, most people go from graduate school, do an N-year postdoc, and then hit the the the, the job market for for faculty positions. Um, there are a few institutions in the US, and I th- I, I'm not sure if this is happening in Europe or not. I, I, I think there are there rumors of, of fellows positions being kind of spun up in Europe, but not, I not—I—I don't know of any specific ones. But in the US, right, this was, this was famously kind of the, the Whitehead did this, right, first, and then UCSF followed suit. There are also fellows positions at um, the Broad, at the Salk. Um, at Princeton, and and Cold Spring Harbor as well, uh, as well as Carnegie is is probably one of the oldest ones as well. Um, And and the general idea, the general idea, right, is that we're gonna provide an institutional commitment to uh, uh, people who maybe have an idea that they wanna go after as a PI right after graduate school, right? They're usually five-year positions, pretty well-funded positions, so usually Uh, The equivalent of an R01 is is roughly what you get. Um, And you you start a lab, right? And so that's what these fellows' positions are, right? Um, I had a few ideas of of basic scientific things that I was very excited about um, trying to apply some of the methods that I developed in graduate school to. um, That broadly speaking, they had to do with studying how cellular metabolism communicates with the nucleus. This is an idea that we're still super excited about and still have some projects going on in the lab about. And and, and then more specifically, how uh, a class of of ubiquitous, absolutely essential molecules called transfer RNAs, uh, what what moonlighting roles they might be playing besides serving as like adapters to the central dogma, right? And and, and, and bridging the gap between mRNA and protein. And um, and so I kind of wrote this idea up, and I, I pitched it to the to the the Sandler Fellows position, and I got super lucky, and they they hired me. Uh, I got the position in 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 early twenty seventeen, but didn't start until fall of twenty eighteen. Um, it's hard, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to start a lab, um, and it is stressful for reasons that um, I anticipated would be stressful, but didn't anticipate quite. How difficult it would be, right? I, I, anyone will tell you this, right? You, you, academic training does not train you for what you actually do as a PI, right? You 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 train, and you're usually at the bench, or and increasingly at the terminal as well, right? Doing everything yourself, right? Sometimes you have. I, I was very fortunate to have a senior scientist who really helped me out, uh, help helped me out in Jay's lab, but but usually it's 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 it's, it's pretty nuclear, right? And then you become a PI, and, and it's very different, right? You, you, you have to, you, it's, a, it's a totally different skill set, right? right? And so that plus, I think, the pressure of grant writing and the pressure of, like, coming up with your own ideas and trying to see them through, is, it's just very stressful, right? Um, and, and then, again, it's kind of the same motif that many people, I think, feel when they're graduate students and postdocs, You try to get through that discomfort by just kind of working really hard, right? And and maybe not thinking about things in the most um, you know the 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 healthiest way, right? And and so the the initial after the initial shock, I think you get into kind of a routine, right? And you realize I think that the priorities have shifted, right? I think most most PIs will say that will agree that the priorities are no longer on what the lab produces but beyond you know high quality and reproducible work, right? But on training good people, right? The, the the shift goes from the PI as an individual to the group, right? And and the health of the group really depends on the happiness and 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 the you know the the the, the happiness of the trainees, right? And and whether they're getting you know what they deserve in terms of mentorship and and whatnot. And so Navigating that transition is sticky sometimes, right? But I I think I think many PIs, especially at UCSF, the institution I'm I'm at, right, agree that training is the priority, right? And so once you've gotten to that, things become a lot more fun, right, and a lot a lot more um, sustainable, right? But the beginning can be very that that transition can be very jarring. Does that kind of answer the question?
0: Yeah, it very well does.
1: And OK, so then remind me what the second, the second the question, secondary
0: was, question was, what is the work that you are currently doing? You talked about it being an amalgamation of the work that you did in grad school and some new stuff. So what is it all about? What is your lab currently focusing on?
1: Yeah, so so two parts, right? The first is technology development, right? And so I'm going to answer this a little backwards than what most people would say, right? Because I think our focus is generally on methods, right? Um, when I started the Sandler position, the area that I thought would be most exciting for developing new methods right, would be leveraging a, a pretty new uh, high-throughput sequencing technology that's fundamentally different from Illumina. And this is called single-molecule long-read sequencing. So the two big platforms for this are Pacific Biosciences, the PacBio platform, and then Oxford Nanopore. Right. The, the, the chemistries they use are completely different, but the but the general just is the same. You can you can now sequence millions of molecules in parallel, but instead of sequencing I mean illuminates at billions now, but instead of sequencing you know three hundred to seven hundred base pair chunks of DNA, we're now going to sequence three thousand to one million base pair chunks, right in parallel. And to me that was, a, for, for a methods developer that just seems so excited, right? Thinking about the, the new streetlights and the field of, field of view limitations, right? Well, what, right now we're making bulk measurements that are resolved at the level of only like 300 to 700 nucleotides, right? What will happen when we start developing new methods but we're new massively parallel methods but now we can measure biology at single molecule scale on the level of thousands, tens of thousands of nucleotides, right? And so that is, the, that is the general theme that we've been trying to follow in terms of developing new technologies that utilize these, these platforms. And then the problem we apply it to is this problem of, of genome packaging, right? So, you know, there's, the, there's, there's, this, uh, there's this quote from the Disney movie, Aladdin, right? The, the genie, he says at some point, right? He says like infinite cosmic power Right, itty bitty living space, right? And this is this is like the problem of genome packaging, right? You have this blueprint of life that spans meters, and it somehow, right, deterministically gets wrapped and packaged into this tiny, tiny volume, right? But it gets even more complicated, right? Because it's not just like a packaging problem, it's an access problem too, because you know, you, the, the DNA has to be dynam- dynamically accessible, right? And this is, of course, what underlies the difference between, say, a bone cell, a skin cell, a muscle cell, a cell that's responsive to calcium versus a cell that isn't responsive to calcium, right? And so th- this, to me, is just such an exciting basic scientific problem. And so we developed new tools to understand how the genome is packaged um, and, and increasingly at this single molecule scale, right? Um, and then, how that packaging goes awry, uh, mostly in cancer, um, but increasingly we're trying to think of other you know, physiologically relevant models where we can begin to think about the links between genome packaging and cellular physiology. Um, and those are the broad, you know, that's the, the, the broad class of problems that we end up going after. But it's always from this methods development angle, right? We develop a new method, and now we want to apply it to discover something new that was missed because of previous limitations. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does, and it, it is sort of reminiscent of how um, many things in academia they come off from these ubiquitous random books people take, and that you have been taking of sorts, and all like and. Uh, and something that can characterize pretty much any basic science discovery of sorts, right, from what people intended and to what it finally arose, it's a completely dealing thing. And it's something really fascinating. So how important a role have mentors played in this fantastic journey you've had through life and science?
1: Really, I mean, I owe a lot, right, to to informal mentors, right, when growing up, right, The, the aforementioned family, family, friends, right, who were experts in the biological fields, and I didn't even realize it, right, as a, you know, preteen and teenager, right, um, I owe a lot to Jay, Jay, the environment that Jay created for me, and I think for a lot of people in the lab, was absolutely perfect, right, um, really gave us the freedom to pursue what we wanted, right, he, he, He focused on the grants and he focused on making sure the lab was well-funded, right? And We had the opportunity to do what we wanted, right? And I think it was pretty rare that Jay would say, don't do something, right? Um, There's a lot of projects that you'll never hear about because they totally failed, but but he let us go after it, right? Um, And I think that flexibility and that freedom is what I think gave me the confidence to try to pursue my own ideas um, as a fellow. here and so, so I've been a fellow for the last three years will be uh, starting as an assistant professor um, in late in late 2021 but in the last three years um, I have had a lot of mentorship from a couple of people right first the, the environment here at UCSF is really fantastic in terms of the pretty collegial young faculty community right so it's it's really nice to have the same problems that you're having as a young faculty right other people are also having right and so there's a really spectacular support network for young faculty um but there's been a couple of of informal but i, I think technically they might be my formal mentors somewhere on paper but um uh, gita Narlikar and Hani Gudarzi are two people who we've ended up working up working very closely with right and i think it's been a nice um a nice mix, right? Of a, a, a pretty young faculty, right? Who's you know been a PI for six years, and then someone like Gita, who's a National Academy member, right? And, and really one of the one of the world experts in the field we're excited in, right? Um, who we've been able to to collaborate with, right? Um, and so scientifically, it's been a really rich environment for collaboration. But in terms of mentorship, there's also other things that I think often get overlooked, right? Um, I've had the, you know, the privilege of being able to go to the lab meetings, go to Narlikar lab meetings and Godarzi lab meetings and seeing how people run their lab, right? And seeing how people foster discussion and people create academic environments that, that work, right? That, that, that trainees feel supported and trainees feel like they're growing intellectually, right? Um, And that I think is, is just absolutely invaluable, right? Because if you don't, if you don't see that, right? And if you don't, try to at least attempt to integrate it, right? I, I, I think it you know it's, it's a very hard job, right? But if you don't try to integrate stuff like that, it becomes very difficult to try to run a lab, right? And and so that kind of area of mentorship, right? And getting that from Jay too and seeing how, you know, what worked in, in Jay's lab that I want to emulate, right? What are things that personality-wise, like I just want to do something differently, right? Those areas, right, in a, just beyond the science end up being absolutely critical, right? So. The short answer, there's a long answer to a short question, but the the short answer is mentors have been incredibly important, right, but not just for the science.
0: Absolutely, that's a really great way you elucidated how important role mentors have played in both your personal and professional development of sorts and all. And being someone who has made great strides as a young PI right out of grad school and all, and having spoken of systems before how do you think of the current way academia is structured at the whole tenure system at all? Do you think this is something that's in change for revolution? Do the programs like you have been part of need to become far more Common rather than the way uh, in a very unreliable manner you have as you've described N years of postdoc before you land up a faculty position and it's especially accurate if your grad school or your postdoctoral place isn't a what you, one would call it a big short place or something of that sort a big lab or a big institute of sorts so what do you think of the whole academic system as a whole and in what ways can it change and in what ways can the current structure be retained
1: yeah yeah so uh, uh, this will be a multi multi-faceted answer right so one one thing right i think that that would be great is you have to have more fellows programs but with a caveat right i want to be very clear when i when i i don't i don't want to say create new fellows programs right because oftentimes they get created and they get created poorly right to be totally frank right the fellows programs that work right are ones that there's a there's a A significant financial commitment to the fellow, right? For five years, and it should be five years of commitment at least, right? And there is a track record of people within the Institute pushing, helping bring the fellows up, right? You don't just leave someone on an island and let them try to figure things out. That's not how people succeed in science. That's not how people succeed generally, right? Uh, Generally speaking, right? You can always obviously find a Find counterexamples, but um, and so I would, what I would say, right, is that is that it, we should definitely start creating more fellow programs like the Sandler program, right, where there is that institutional support that can help someone who's just coming out of graduate school begin their career as a as a PI, right, without having to go through kind of this 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 kind of postdoc role, right. There's there's definitely room for that, right. Um, the other thing I think that we should really be be thinking about, right, um, which is which is different, but I think in in line, right, and in, in, in terms of thinking about PI progression, right, there's tons of support for early career PIs, right. There are lots of grants that are that are everyone knows about, right. There there literally NIH makes it easier for early career PIs to get. Their first grant right thanks to you know this early stage investigator status right um much harder once you're mid-career and you're coming due for your first renewal right or coming due for you know the first batch of it's it's a cliff they call it right where your funding's about to your early career pi funding is about to run out and now you're faced with this really challenging proposition of trying to continue in this area that people don't think about, right? And so we need to come up with models that actually support mid career VIs, right? There's the late career, right, story kind of things that you hear about, right, the established investigator awards, and there's the early career investigator awards, but that middle part is incredibly challenging and very difficult for people to navigate, and no one talks about it, right? And so when you talk about a sustainable academic environment, you can't just celebrate the beginning and celebrate the end, right? You have to also prop up the middle. And so that's another area that I think we could do a lot better at. And I, I imagine that people are thinking about ways to, ways, to do, ways to do that, but that's, I think, gonna be a big thing for the next five years is trying to figure out how to support mid-career PIs. Um, and, then, and then I think the third thing, right, is, is normalizing the senior scientist role. Right. I, I think that there's all too often this sense that I that it's a, it's a, a tree. Right. I'm either going to do a postdoc, and I'm going to go into industry. As a, as a senior scientist or a group leader or what have you, but there's many different titles in industry. Right. Or I'm going to be a P.I. in academia. And that's it. Right. Um, when in reality, right, what, what academia could probably use a lot more of are well paid. Well-respected senior scientists who work under the umbrella of a PI, right, but have you know some degree of autonomy, but also just excited to do basic science, right, and are not only excited to do basic science, but they're also compensated fairly to do basic science, right, and I think you know I those are three areas that I think are three separate areas, but if we make progress in any of those three, right, the Academic institution that we're currently dealing with would be just much better, right? I think people would be happier. People would no longer be, you know, stressing about the uh, 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 training requirements and the undue, you know, uh, opportunity cost of, of, of trying to do a PhD and trying to do a postdoc, right? Which has all of these other issues that we haven't yet ta- we haven't talked about, but talking about, you know. Um, equity right and and talking about making sure that everyone has an opportunity to be a scientist right we need to be able I think I think if we're able to navigate the structure and and reform it on any of those axes we it'll go a long way towards you know making a more equitable academic academic environment does that make sense
0: yes it absolutely does and talking about equity and all and your own experience you have had a Really stellar experience through science and life. But at the same time, as you talked about, there are some deep rooted inequities and injustices that also pervade academia, they pervade society broadly as a whole, and they pervade academia too. And there have been these issues like disparity, bias, and discrimination against underrepresented groups that have played academia for long so being an ethnic immigrant or otherwise have you been at the receiving end at any point of time and you had to confront it or did you have to confront it on someone else's behalf a mentee of yours's behalf and how exactly did you confront it
1: yeah right i, I look I, i've been i i've been super fortunate in that i, I mean we're 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 a represented minority in the sciences, right? And I've been super fortunate to, to have not really felt the sting of this kind of discrimination, um, but it's something that I'd, I'd been thinking about for a long time, right? Um, one of the things in, in undergrad that, that first got me thinking about this, right? It was, was also fortunate to have friends who were deeply passionate about education reform, right? And the time, maybe I thought less about it, but, but in, in, in ensuing years, right? thinking about education as a pyramid right and thinking about strengthening right the the and, and, and ma- making early early age education more equitable right there are a lot there are charter schools that are doing this now right um so so it's something i've i've been thinking about for a while right i think especially in the last couple of years um i i would say that i would say that i was uh, unfortunately not quite as as literate as maybe i, I am now in terms of thinking about Just how obviously biased and obviously inequitable the academy is, right? But um, you know, now I think I think there's this reckoning, right? This this recognition that the academy is pretty racist, right? And then trying to figure out how to how to change it, right? Um, One of the things that you know we've begun doing in the lab, right, is is trying to dedicate, um, you know, every few months. Just an open discussion time to just talk about various issues right in, in 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 equity relating to academia right so it's kind of an open discussion for an hour so rather than talk about science for an hour right we're gonna have a, a, a usually pretty awkward right just discussion right where anyone can bring up okay here's something that's been bothering me right or here's something that I'm seeing that we need we should talk about we should at least name right and then begin to talk about what we can do right but it's a it's it' It it is a it's a challenging thing to discuss as well. Um, but no, I have been super privileged, right? I've been I I was very fortunate, right, to to kind of <clears throat> not be exposed to many of the, the problems that we now know are rampant in academia, right? Um, and so now it's just kind of incumbent on me as a PI and as as PIs generally, right, to rectify many of these issues.
0: Absolutely. You made some truly fantastic points. And as you talked about, it's important for all of us to recognize our own place in academia and understand a way we can intrinsically or even sort of unwantedly miss out on these type of biases and all that pervade academia and society as a whole and there's always this whole notion of objectivity that's attached to the sciences in particular where people are bewildered by the notion of particular science being um uh, biased or something of that sort and although yeah that, that is an absolute notion but at the end of the day the practitioners of the science are humans after all and our very own human biases and all do creep into the science and academic culture that we that we provide
1: it's it's interesting that you know it's 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 just very interesting to think about right objectively the ac- the academy is racist and biased right but i think i think scientists are you know loath to flip that lens of objectivity onto themselves right and that's that's the reckoning i think that we we're currently undergoing right and and hopefully for the better
0: Absolutely. And talking about these things, talking about these issues, these sort of contentious issues, when talks about the last decade as a whole, we have seen revolutionary technologies like CRISPR coming onto the scene, and you have been right in the thick of things and all, and there have been a touch, controversies to them, whether it is the gene editing babies that were done outside of regulatory purview by scientists in China and all. So what role do you see the way The regulatory challenges and the policy challenges around these technologies. Do you see there is a need for a regulatory oversight of sort with the potential of these? Revolutionary revolution in technologies that is nothing compared to what the world has seen in the last decade. We have especially seen things like AI, ML, CRISPR come to the forefront and we have seen around two, three decades back the stencils becoming a partisan political issue. But CRISPR, AI, ML are revolutionary on a wholly different scale and all. So what role do you see regulators and government and policymakers playing in these scenes?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? And and I indirectly had some interesting exposure to this when I was a graduate student in, in Jay's lab. Um, and the 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 controversy at the time, right, had to do with the release of Henrietta Lacks's the HeLa genome, right? And um, my 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 old lab mate Andrew Adie, had done some really beautiful work applying many technologies to res- to create the first haplotype resolved genome and epigenome for the HeLa cancer cell line, right? This, this kind of workhorse for, for modern molecular biology and modern cancer biology, right? And, um, and at the time, uh, there was something that I, I think became very clear to the lab, right, and, and, and certainly became clear to Andrew and Jay, was that, that the manner by which one releases a sequence like that right, requires regulation. It requires oversight and requires a lot of ethical thought and, and discussion and, uh, 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 prior to simply publishing something, right? And, 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 and that's for many reasons, right? I, I, I think that the, the, the biggest one, right, is out of respect for Henrietta Lacks and, and her family, right? And, and thinking about, right, what is ethical and what is fair right especially when we think about the manner by which the Gila line was was derived right and and i think that that points to a a, a greater source of conflict amongst scientists right and, and, and this kind of goes back to this this objectivity that you were just talking about right scientists like to think right that they can do whatever do what they want right they're going to make a discovery and then they're going to publish it right they they're, they're going to and and especially because science is pretty competitive they're going to want to be the first right and, and in this race to be the first at something, we often tend not to think about the broader implications right, uh, of, 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 of our actions. right. And this is, I think, especially true in the field of genetics. Right? And so the short answer to your question is, of course, we need oversight. right? And we need oversight because scientists have proven time and time again that without that oversight, if left to their own devices, they're less likely to make the, the most ethically correct decision, right? In in retrospect, right? And so, but 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 I think it's a threading a needle, right? Because there's a difference between discourse and ethical discussion and and figuring out the the most equitable and the the fairest way to sh- disseminate information, and hiding information, right? Or or spreading disinformation, right? and, and I think that this is just as true in the united states as it is in india right in terms of thinking about how to say we how to safely say we don't know what to do let's discuss what to do and let's let's see what is correct with the eventual goal of spreading information rather than saying well we don't know what to do so let's just make something up and we're going to spread this disinformation right do you know what i mean
0: absolutely <laughs>
1: And so yeah so that that that's the that, that that I think that's that's where I fall on this right where where we need to have have pretty honest conversations and this is where you know people who who think more about bioethics and people who maybe aren't basic biologists but are in fact philosophers and people who, who think about you know the 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 philosophy of of how things are done in a fair and just way right they need to be integrated right so it's so it's kind of multidisciplinary but in a way that we don't typically think about in terms of science right
0: Absolutely, that's a very precinct point you made and a very terrific point too, because as we saw, when we talk about measures or even pandemic measures that become partisan political issue with devastating consequences, when we see a public leader uh, sort of encouraging their followers not to take vaccines or not to mask or social distance, it has devastating consequences as we saw and we are still continuing to see over a year and a half now. And this points to a basic aspect of science that's uh, sort of neglected in society is scientific theories don't hold true because of the scientists behind them. It's because the process of science judges them to be correct. And that's how it is. Relativity is not right because Einstein proposed it. Gravitation doesn't work because Newton was the one proposing it. They were equally valid theories without those people. And this is a concept that has far-reaching consequences and not understanding those. That's how when people claim with the current amount of data at hand, it's tough for them to and yet they are being forced to you know, they are put on a spot and told to do predict something and that's what held against them later on. What happens is there is this pu- fundamental public misunderstanding of scientists. Modelers are just supposed to model the way the things are going. They are in the ones actually predicting on this day, this is the end number of cases you will have. And this is something if maybe a better appreciation of sorts can be gained in society. Will sort of work, but at the same time, it requires a multidisciplinary approach. It requires actually integrating sociologists, anthropologists, and everyone into this fold. And this is not just yet another scientific problem that one can solve and publish and garner citations about. It, it,
1: exactly right, and I think it I think it beautifully right encapsulates this idea that you know as scientists we we are we are we are in collaboration with everyone right non scientists and scientists within science. We are, we are, it's a collaborative effort, right? Right, you know, I, I, there's, there's often this tendency to celebrate individuals, right? We, we, our society does it, right? Look at Nobel, Nobel Prize, right? Nobel laureates, right? When in reality, it's, it takes a village, right? It takes a city, right? It, 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 even the Nobel laureates, right? They had labs doing things, right? And, and, and if we're all in search of, of, the truth or the closest thing to the truth that that we can find right that necessitates that we don't that that at some point we didn't know right and it's okay right to say i don't know about this but i have all of this evidence for this and so i'm pretty sure about the, this other thing right not knowing about one thing doesn't mean that you don't have evidence describing something else right i think the we can go back to the mrna vaccines as the example right we, we, we know all of this about mRNA, right? And now we have even more data in the last year that shows that this works even better than we anticipated. And it's also okay that maybe we don't know what exactly to do right now in terms of booster shots or, or something, right? The the, the, the two are, are separate, you know?
0: Absolutely. You made a really, really terrific point and uh, once reminded of how this whole notion of lone genius operates and we have also seen we just can't the scientists um, some like, slack uh, when political leaders have abused that, even some scientists, some so called Nobel laureates have used those awards to portray a deliberate misunderstanding of the way the pandemic is unfolding. And this has given fodder to the conspiracy theorists out there of touting pandemic measures not working or vaccines not being effective with devastating consequences. And as we have seen, the scientific community as a whole doesn't really operate on the principle principle. principle of geniuses or individuals, rather it operates on the metal of the theories involved. And that's why, just because Einstein wasn't right about quantum mechanics doesn't negate his work on relativity, and just because of his correctness of his work on relativity, that doesn't imply the correctness of his stance on quantum mechanics.
1: Right, I mean, like to go back to molecular biology, right, Pauling got the structure of DNA totally wrong, right? He published the wrong thing, right? Doesn't mean he was wrong about Alpha helices, right? In beta sheets. <laughs> but but somehow, right, and, and I think, and I think, you know, you know, uh, political radicalization, right, plays a lot of this, right? People like to think in absolutes, right? Either you're right or you're wrong. Either you won the Nobel Prize or you didn't, right? And 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 we just need to move away from that, right? I don't know how, right? <laughs> but but we need to somehow move away from it. Maybe we should all uninstall Facebook. <laughs>
0: Absolutely! I once reminded of in a very special, very terrific Christmas Eve episode of Random Walks. We had Dr. Pranam Chatterjee, a postdoc in George Church's lab at Harvard Medical School, and he gave a very defining soundbite when he stated that science doesn't stand on the shoulders of giants, as Newton would have us believe, rather it stands on the back of all the research technicians, graduate students, and research scientists, and PIs out there who are striving day in and day out. And they are the ones actually incrementally progressing science and humanity as a whole, and not lone geniuses or giants that Newton will have us believe.
1: Exactly, right? I think if there's one thing to take away from this podcast, it's that, right? That that it's not a lone genius, right? It's a lot of work from a lot of very talented very hardworking people right that's the fun of it that's 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 the
0: fun of science right absolutely and you're someone who has been right in the thick of things has really enjoyed the journey of had and all and you have been at the thick of what one would call the hot topics or revolutionary fields that have are uh, actively undergoing revolution over the years and you have been part of it so how do you see the coming few years and decades shaping up to be for genomics, genomic editing, sequencing, and all of it, and bioengineering, bio, and biology as a whole, with its whole intersection of computation, engineering, and the natural sciences really coming to the fore and all. So how do you see, over the next few years, the fields that you're working in and fields adjacent to that sort of revolutionizing?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think, I think in terms of, we could think about it a few different ways, right? In terms of genome editing, I, I, I am, I am excited for a world where Mendelian disease has been eradicated, right? Where, where rare monogenic disease, right? We, we were a- basically able to intervene and, and make it such that, you know, kids aren't born with really, really challenging, challenging diseases, right? And, 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 um, I think that we're going to get there right with regulation and 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 it's also going to involve you know drops in price in terms of of of, of you know pre-implant pre-implantation diagnosis and whatnot right um but and 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 that's a regulatory thing too we need insurance companies it's in the states we need insurance companies to actually pay for this stuff and make it equitable make sure everyone can achieve this but i do think we could get there right i think i think in the in the coming decades we we really could get there and that's incredibly exciting i think that's that is um, really a, a, a holy grail, right? For, for genetic disease and, 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 and medical genetics. Um, you know, I think that uh, we're also getting into an, an area where we're gonna find drugs and, and, and biologic therapies that are designer, right? That, that, that we're gonna be able to leverage our ability to measure biological outcomes in, in at unprecedented resolution and our ability to model say the relationship between chemical structures or chemical perturbations or biologic perturbations and 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 model the link between those two right of, of perturbation as an input and regulatory outputs right with these kind of advances in, in, in CNN's and graph neural networks and whatnot um, and, and and I think that's going to make a big deal just in terms of non genome editing type approaches, right? In terms, yes, we could talk about CAR T till the cars come home, right? But c- cows come home, but um, but I think even for, for for our general thought of how we can drug patients and, and achieve you know small molecule cures, right, or biologic cures, like we're we're going to make a lot of advances in the next decade. And then, and then you know, the third area that I'm I'm super excited about, and and if if we're lucky, maybe we'll be able to start working on this as a lab, right? But thinking about biologic discovery in in organisms and in um, uh, areas of the tree of life on this planet that we just haven't ascertained yet, right? Thinking about extremophiles, thinking about I I just think there's such an elegance to the discovery of not just Cas9, but but all these CRISPR-Cas systems, right? And, and also the inception of molecular biology, too, right? Many of the enzymes that we use are, are phage-encoded enzymes, right? T4 DNA ligase, T4 DNA polymerase, right? Um, and they, they're nothing short of, they've done nothing less than revolutionize our ability to carry out molecular biology, right? And, and I just think, especially with the advances in sequencing technology and the dropping cost in Uh, assembling and and ascertaining new genomes and transcriptomes, I'm very excited by the prospect of finding the next, the next big enzymes, right? So someone is someone, many people are working on it. Many more people will work on it over the next few decades. And I think we're gonna find some really exciting things, right? Especially if we start looking in these extremophiles or looking in, I think what are now being referred to as like emerging research organisms, right? Not models, but things that could very well be models in the future, right? And that's enabled by genomics, right? And and so so I know those are three kind of different areas, but those are the areas I'm really excited about. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And a veto. we began talking about your journey by talking about that famous graph, and do you still see it going on its downward path? Do you see right now it's hovering somewhere around thousand dollars to sequence a genome of sorts? Do you see that cost even coming down? And something of that sort in the next couple of decades, it's being as ubiquitous as getting a complete blood count report of yours once you walk into a hospital.
1: It's 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 really revolutionary, right? And and it's just going to keep dropping because there's competition, right? Illumina is not is not a monolithic, right? There are many people who are competing with them, not just for long reads but for short read sequencing as well, right? And and so that competition is really healthy, and it's going to keep dropping the cost even even lower, right? But we haven't even talked about the next advance, right? Sequencing the proteome, sequencing, right? Other biopolymers, right, and that that are important for life, right, and, and I think we're going to get there too in the next few decades. So we're going to have, you know, there's there's still technology to be developed, right, um, and the same Moore's law, right, that apply that people apply to sequencing, right. Right, uh, those same graphs are gonna happen for single cell sequencing, they're gonna happen for protein sequencing, for long read sequencing too. And it's just to the benefit of the, of the consumer, it's, it's the benefit of scientists and non-scientists alike because it's gonna change the way we address human health. right? But it's also gonna be really great for, selfishly for us basic biologists too.
0: Absolutely and speaking of your journey in science we talked how science can be a really academy in particular can be a really stressful place sometimes and all so what is something that you do apart from science and apart from academia what are some other interests of yours that are completely separate you talked about playing the flute for a long time and all do you still play it and all and what else do you do? Yeah.
1: Um, so, so I, I you know, I, I grew up playing the flute and grew up singing and mostly singing actually. And so um, when I was in grad school, I, I took some flute lessons. Again, I started going back to some of the repertoire that I hadn't practiced for a long time. And that that was one way to de-stress, but I mostly sang. And so I sang in a community choir um, before the pandemic. I was also in a community choir here in San Francisco. It turns out that singing is a super spreader event <laughs> or singing in a choir is a super spreader event. So maybe not going to be doing that for a little bit. But um, but yeah, that, that was a big thing that I that also kind of kept me sane in graduate school and it and has been a really nice thing to do since I've i I've, I've been here as well, is to find a group of people to sing with and 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 um sing choir concerts and whatnot. And so that's been really a nice, a nice break from from the from the science, yeah.
0: That's really interesting, Anil. And this has been a really fascinating conversation with you on a stellar random walk through science life and academia and replete with your very recent insights and really terrific takes on multiple things. Thank you. Thank you for coming and indulging us in a very fascinating random walk. And finally, as a random Walks podcast tradition, which three people would you like to come and divulge their own experience in a random walk?
1: Yeah, so um, I'll have to keep it. I'll keep it within the UCSF family, right? I think that you know, there's three people who I I, I think would be really fantastic. I think that uh, my two mentors would be great guests. I think Gita Narlikar and Hani Kudarzi would be great. And then you know, I think I think the third person to to talk to who would be really fantastic is uh, Clement Verba, and he's a he's another fellow at UCSF who's been doing some really beautiful cryo-electron microscopic structural work um, on various proteins, but most recently, in the context of the Quantitative Coronavirus Research Group, solving structures of, of, of SARS-CoV-2 proteins. And, and he's also been integrating some AlphaFold predictions too. So I think he would be spectacular as well.
0: Those are absolutely stellar nominations. And thank you, thank you for coming and indulging us in such a terrific random move. Thank you
1: so much for, for the
0: time and thanks everyone for listening.